sweeping job cuts across financially strained universities are heaping pressure on the science sector. There have been close to 600 job losses across Massey, Victoria and Otago universities, a mixture of voluntary and forced redundancies, resulting in some subjects being eliminated from institutions altogether. Much of the financial strife was brought on through the COVID-19 pandemic, which saw student numbers plummet and they've remained inconsistent since. Scientists fear it will take a toll on the small research sector for many years to come. To talk about the funding structures and what's led to this point, physicist and science com- commentator Nicola Gaston's with us. Morena, Nicola. Morena, Catherine. Professor Michael Planck will be discussing, among other things, the role science played in the COVID-19 response and how well we're prepared to respond to future emergencies. Kia ora, Michael. Kia ora, Catherine. And New Zealand Association of Science co-president is Troy Baston, who has among his concerns a dire warning about an impending collapse across Crown-funded research projects. Great to have you with us. Welcome. Ata Maria. Nicola, can you tell us about the situation facing science programmes at universities currently? I know some, on the face of it, small things have gone that are actually big things, uh, and there are big departments, entire departments at risk. Could you overview as best you can? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a, a, a bit of what I can, Catherine. Uh, I think you've summarised the university funding cuts fairly well. Um, it's across all of our universities um, that the, the there are funding pressures. Uh, you mentioned, I think, three in your intro with the announced job cuts, but there are foreshadowed job cuts still to come that haven't fully been um, run through in, in some of the places. And it's it's a mixture of um, uh, funding being down because of teaching income, which is very much related to student numbers, but also research funding is down um, largely because of the impacts of our research funding never been a, being adjusted for inflation. That's one of the big things. So, so, remind so us of the, just remind us of the funding structure briefly again. There's the oh. per-student funding that goes yes. to universities, and then there's a pool of research funding, and it's argued that that has just become, in real terms, smaller and smaller. Insufficient, absolutely. Okay. So, so it's, per-student funding has reduced. Research funding is kind of split into baseline funding and contestable funding, but both of those pools of funding have reduced um, with respect to inflation. Um, some of that goes through MB for, for grants in particular, but some of it goes directly to universities to prop up the research capacity of our universities because that is something that our universities are expected to do for national benefit. And so there is a pool of research funding called the PBRF, which goes to our universities kind of directly uh, based on how much research they do. But that has also been completely flatlined for, I think it's about six years now that there's been no adjustment to that for inflation. Can we talk about why we're looking at science in particular when there are funding squeezes across the board affecting different disciplines, different professions? But could you overview the science ecosystem, pardon the pun, because what happens at universities affects what happens in research, which in turn can be commercialised or become public good, like Michael's work in the pandemic. Could you just tell us how it flows through the chain? Yep. So... I'll talk a little bit about the space that I'm in. So I run something called the McDermott Institute, which is a research institute. Um, And so money comes through to us uh, from the government 
to achieve a set of research objectives. So we're interested in things like reducing the energy cost of computing, um, in reducing carbon impacts, so, so trying to fix the carbon cycle, use CO2 for interesting things. We're interested in making materials more inherently recyclable. Those are sort of some of the research goals. And we have a great track record in having a lot of this work commercialized as well. And so we spread our money quite thinly. We go across many of the universities in New Zealand, um, also one of our CRIs, and we fund people to do bits of work that is highly collaborative and focused on achieving these big picture outcomes. And so it might be one of the reasons that we're feeling the pinch more quickly than other research projects that maybe put more time into individual people. But for us, you know, we, we fund people for between 5 and 15% of their time as, um, as, as staff, whether they're university staff or, or research institute staff. And so that means less than a day a week. So about three quarters of a day a week at most, but a lot of people we only fund for about a quarter of a day a week for their research time, which is not very much. And we have uh, what is effectively now a 20% um, cut relative to inflation from when we set our budget back in 2019 when we were planning uh, what we were going to do for this eight-year contract. So we're in the middle of our contract now and we're looking very, very hard at how we think about changing our budget over the next half of the contract to achieve as best we can the outcomes that we're contracted to achieve. And we have options. We can cut those staff costs where we're already only funding people for a very small part of their time per week. Um, and there are issues with that in that we have actually very little control about the impacts of the university funding outside of our funding so that we're losing staff who we would love to keep. Um, there's no strategy in that. There's no there's no way that we can influence that. We've only got a small uh, contribution to make to the, the cost of those staff. We can cut PhD students, uh, but then again, we see real issues with the critical mass where if ideally we, we've constructed a plan where you might have three PhD students contributing to a project because you might have somebody working on some basic experiments, somebody working on some theory, somebody working on the engineering required to really develop the science further into a product. Um, and, you know, so, so we cut projects by 20% and it ends up with some of those projects becoming unviable. Yeah. You, you just hit the nail on the head. Yeah. You used the word yeah. critical mass and you can chip yeah. away and cut away at something to a certain point to the point where it ends up not being viable, just not delivering <laughs> what it can deliver. And, and that's, I think, what I'm hearing from various parts of the sector. You and I have been talking about the funding of science for as long as I've been in this job, probably longer than you've been in yours. Uh, but that's the difference now. It, I hate to bring up the analogy. I was just talking to Troy before we came on air. But, you know, you can lose bits off the bits off the iceberg and then there's a, there's a tipping point. Um, and, and that's kind of what you're hearing from a lot of parts of the sector. Just pause, Nicola. I want to come back to you, but I want to bring in Michael Plank. This, um, this is drawn from some excellent um, reporting by the New Zealand Herald's Jamie Morton, who looked at this thoroughly late last year. Um Auckland University of Technology looked to shutter our only radio observatory uh, until international scientists alerted government officials that this could disrupt critical global networks which support GPS. Um, another example the, from his work, the Waikato Radio Carbon Dating Laboratory um, was going to be scrapped. Um, uh, I think it escaped in the end. 
but it upset globally important research in Dunedin, one of the few human parasitology research labs. looks like it's set to go. And that was announced right as Queenstown's cryptosporidium outbreak happened. Michael, can we come to you and talk about the pandemic modelling? Again, this is when we don't know what we've got or haven't got until a moment occurs. Can you speak a little bit about your situation in the early COVID-19 days and what you had to step up and do? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, thinking back to the, uh, the early days of the pandemic, um, you know, we really did have to scramble to, to pull um, a team of people together um, that could do that work um, that was needed and that was really a critical part of that, um, of that response. So, it, you know, <clears throat> it wasn't something that was just sort of there and, and ready to go. Uh, I think, you know, there's a tendency to sort of um, take that, that expertise and that, that scientific um, uh, expertise for granted. But really, it's something we need to actively invest in. And, um, you know, COVID is obviously just, is, is just an obvious example, but there are plenty of other uh, examples of, of crises um, where, you know, the government has, has called on scientific expertise um, to respond to that. You know, the Fakari disaster, um, Michael Padmabovis and some of the others that, that you mentioned, and of course climate change as well is a, is a massive issue that touches on so many different areas of expertise. And, you know, if we're forced to cut jobs, then as well as losing teaching programmes and, and subjects for students to take, we do lose that expertise and that capacity. And I think that really impacts the the ability to respond to these sorts of emergencies and threats in future. And, and it's difficult to predict exactly when and what expertise you, you're going to need because an emergency, by definition, is, is something that sort of takes you by surprise. At that time, I, I think there was the adrenaline of having to put together a model, which, by the way, should it, should it have had to be put together as the emergency unfolded or is this something that ideally um, we would have in our bank of preparedness, Michael? Can you explain? Oh, ideally, yes, absolutely. You'd want to have, um, you know, a, a lot of work done in advance of the pandemic. And, and some of that was. Um, but, you know, I think it was, um, it, it, it needed to be more developed. Um, and I think we need to put more thought into that in, in future uh, for pandemic preparedness, you know, having a plan, having, um, uh, you know, the models sort of already worked on. But also having that expertise, you need the people. It's all very well having whatever, some computer code or some database somewhere. Um, but, but unless you've got the people with the expertise that know how to use that uh, and, um, and to really interpret it, then it's not going to be that useful. So, you know, you, you, you really need to have that capacity within the sector um, that, that you can turn to a, an emergency response when it's needed. Is there an irony that at the time you were all running on adrenaline, you and others, I remember uh, Professor Mick Roberts was another we had in the early days uh, explaining the modelling um, and debating the modelling. Um, we Were peers of yours, even at that time, wondering about the future of their jobs? Oh yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Thinking back to the to the early days of 2020, there were there were you know, it's like history repeating itself. There were there were threats of job cuts and, and people um, living with high levels of job insecurity. Um, and, and you know, throughout the pandemic itself, with modelling teams, you know, a lot of the work was done by early career researchers and, and students who were employed on on short term contracts. And, you know, of course, they're working long hours in quite stressful situations, you know, high levels of fatigue and burnout. Uh, and 
in, in some cases, you know, not knowing if the contract's going to be renewed um, beyond a short period of time. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was it was it took a toll on, on people from, from that point of view. Stay with us. Let's uh, bring in our uh, third guest now, Troy Baisden, who's with me in the Wellington studio. He's the co-president of the New Zealand Association of Scientists. Um, I was touching on Nicola, um, the with Nicola touching on the very complex components that go into the funding structure and the way the funding of science happens. What are your particular concerns with some of the structural and particularly the Crown-funded research, the National Science Challenges, that are key um, components of the sector as well, Troy? Yeah, thanks for bringing up the sort of whole picture and, and the tipping point problem in particular. It's it's really this concern that the defunding of national science challenges after almost um, eight or ten years of having them in place, depending on the particular challenge, that comes up on June 30th, and there's no plan in place for what happens next. So that's so, so one sorry, thing is in there, itself. Is, is this one of these sometimes imaginary fiscal cliffs that it just needs a government to say, yes, the funding will continue, or is there a signal that it won't? There's been a signal that it won't. There was a signal that something else should replace it, but that replacement um, is probably a victim of the change of government. Okay, so in the so meantime, what? with a June deadline, where are the people currently working on those challenges left? Well, that's exactly the question. And what I and others are observing are that we're seeing the CRIs that run the challenges and and have them embedded within their budgets, rearranging their capability and starting to make cuts or getting plans in place for cuts. Like I'm hearing numbers on the order of 30% of ocean science being cut. Will that help us deal with the enormous challenges we have governing and managing our resources in the Southern Ocean, as well as putting climate change on top of those. Those are the types of questions we need to be asking as a nation. Remind us of the other current challenges. Ooh, there's, I think, 10 or 11 of them. So they go every everything from healthy homes, better lives. Um, You've got the Deep South looking at the Southern Ocean. Um, I would also say there's things outside of challenges that probably continue but have an uncertain future, like the Antarctic Science Platform. We've got the big Our Land and Water Challenge. so, yeah, there's there's a pile of them. It's difficult to go through a list of them all in a way that really captures everything. And then we've got pieces that weren't funded by the challenges, like the mitigation of climate change. So when you look at the way science is funded, we're talking specifically about the impact of the university cuts at the moment. Mm. But again, can you speak to the way the whole system works as a chain and, and what are the risks of those links breaking? Yeah. Currently, we've got a system that's built up from a lot of institutions that run like universities, that run like Crown Research Institutes, and run like independent research organizations. Independents are simpler. The others have their councils or boards. And so they have governance, which often then overlaps with the governance in national science challenges. And that in itself can become confusing, as well as the array of the institutions. Uh, One thing I would say is that some of these can do a tremendously good job. We saw plant and food research combined about 10 years ago out of crop and food and hort research. And that's now an organization that I would say looks after a national strategy. And that's the kind of thing based on the 2010 CRI task force report. They said our nation should be doing those things. We should have 
research institutions that are in the center of our national strategies, leading where possible, but definitely part of the missions to to lead on behalf of New Zealand and not just look after their own bottom line. And currently, our institutions are struggling to just look after their own bottom line. Can we look specifically at the universities? And again, it's this mix of the teaching, uh, supervision of masters and PhD students, um, doing actual research, some of it being actually commercialised, and then, as Nicola was explaining earlier, the, the wider collaboration. How brutal is what is happening in the universities at the moment, and how much is that going to undermine the whole picture? It definitely feels like it undermines the whole picture. And I think that one of the things we really need to think about when we look at any part of this problem is that there's so many different pieces going on in it that we could spend three hours on it and still be unpacking pieces. So let's look at the big sort of assumptions or myths. And one of them I think we need to think about is that universities we see as the solution to, to society's problems. And they really did that for us in the 20th century. All the different things you mentioned were the magical solution to the problems of the 21st, 20th century. We're now in the 21st century addressing problems like climate change. And even with the pandemic and looking at Michael's experience trying to lead a group that was providing absolutely necessary modeling and information, can we really look back and say that as we now turn our, our faces from the rear, rear view mirror of the 20th century to look forward that universities are the universal solution to those problems. They, what else do we need? They are the educators, though, of the next scientists, and that's their, that is the key part, I guess, in the chain. Um, and we are already having a lot of concern about the teaching of science uh, at school and the capabilities of the teaching of science at school. And if you shift focus away from the universities, do you lose that uh, pathway for the science student who's gathering experience, who's moving into more senior um, uh, research or academic roles and is being supervised? Aren't they a critical cog educationally? Absolutely. So both in providing that education that gives us those next steps so that we don't have to draw on it internationally, because there are a lot of things that we have the expertise in New Zealand to deal with what needs to be known in New Zealand, whether it's our geology, whether it's our oceans, whether it's our ecosystems, whether it's our people, in particular for Māori. We need those things in our universities. We need the people in the universities to be a storehouse of that capability that is probably the most stable one in our nation. They also need to inspire, don't they? No one wants to have a run-of-the-mill, you know, exactly. experience at university. You want the very be- You want access to the very best in the field who's going to inspire and impassion you. And is that not one of the strengths of the system as, as it's been, even if the funding is now kneecapping it? That's right. And I think another way of saying that slightly differently is that if we look at a system that can't completely fund everything it was doing. We need excellence at the core things that universities should do, the excellence that needs to be most tightly attached to the teaching and to the leadership associated with that. And it needs to then be very well connected to the rest of the research leadership and strategy in our society. Nicola Gaston, can I bring you back on that? Because it's uh, quasi-controversial in a way, because... um, Can you necessarily connect or do you need to have a seamlessness between the very best in their fields 
and the students who are beginning to work their way towards masters, PhDs, whatever. Is it possible oh, to design a, an education role for the unis, but not the other stuff? I, I know what you mean, Catherine. And I, I would say seamlessness is not the word I would go for. I would say there's actually a very healthy tension between research expertise development and training of students in our universities. Um, and let me try and unpack that for you a little bit more. I I, I, I completely, completely believe that the, the biggest thing that our universities achieve, and, and this is including the research impacts and 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 the research productivity of our universities it's about the capacity development that we we provide it's about the the student training um but students you know th- there's been a, a bit of a, a story for a long time or a bit of a message around um you know universities being overly reliant on students for research work and this has been a critique in the particular context of funding students, paying them fairly yep. for Interns, the Internships, et cetera, yeah. unfunded and, and research. That's, yep. that's, that's a real critique which I take on board and, mm. and which is completely valid. But on the other hand, I think there is a real defence for how much students are at the core of university research activity because that's how we create it's impact. It's how we teach because them, it's how we impassion them. Yeah, the expertise gets taken outside the university, and that's how it creates real value in the long term for society. And I'm I'm a deep, deep believer in that. So, are you a believer in leaving a strong research focus within the universities? What they might do, and we've already discussed this with the head of Vic and others, what they might do is better organise between them who specialises in what. I- I, I think more coordination between our universities might be one way of getting greater efficiency if that's really what we need to do. But I will point out that for a long, long time, we've prided ourselves on one of the metrics of our whole research funding system has been that we have very high productivity per researcher, which means that in general, people are underpaid. We're ripping and them off, yeah. Look, and, and one more point, I'm going to come to Michael in a moment. One more point. I think yep. of the stuff that's coming out of the biomedical or bioengineering research at Auckland University um, as well. Mm. Again, if yep. that were in a separate institution, would mm. it have the same impact? Would, it, would, would students have the same visibility across what's mm. possible? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and I'm I I don't like questions that sort of put the universities and CRIs in opposition to each other. I used to work in a CRI, and I see a lot of value in both systems. A lot of the way that I think about it these days is that the CRIs are really well suited to um, supporting existing, well developed research needs, whether those needs are environmental or commercial for established industries. What the universities are really good to do is providing the dynamic and complementary expertise that addresses the economic needs of the future, that is a bit more able to perhaps step into spaces that we don't see coming, that preserves capacity across a wide range of research areas. And, and I would include the humanities and the social sciences in this, even though we've we've kept this conversation quite science specific. Um, I think that breadth of research expertise that can be you know, developed that can be um, enhanced or or used as needed. It's it's something that's quite complementary to the CRIs in in my in my uh, opinion. Um, I don't think we should see the two types of organisation as okay. being in competition. The, the question was well. that what I took was a bit of an inference that maybe the universities are too research focused 
for the for, for looking forward. Now I'm going to come back to each of you, I, I and I want you as succinctly as possible in a minute to tell me what you would do to the funding system. As I said, Nicola, you and I have been talking about this forever, mm. but but I want you to come back to whether the system and the structure of the system is part of the problem of underfunding, right? So have to think about that. Michael, I just want to talk to you, though, about uh, very quickly about your your view on that, that the actual role of the universities themselves, what they should be doing, whether they should be cooperating more, if the funding pressures, which aren't going to go away, are going to be mitigated. Your view? Um, yeah, look, I, I think... Um you know, New Zealand is a small country. We, we punch above our weight, maybe, um, but but we've got to make best use of the resources we have. And what, what I see um, too often is is fierce competition between institutions competing for the same pool of students, the same pots of funding, and that just creates a whole lot of extra work without actually increasing the size of the pie. So I think you know there there, there, there is room for more cooperation uh, between institutions with a view to you know delivering the best we can from the, the sector as a whole on the funding question nicola um mm. the, your starting point is it's underfunded but is the structure and the way the funding happens part of the problem yes um can i give you three bullet points i'll try to keep them very precise um the first is that I completely agree about the cooperation. I think some of that needs to be discipline specific, so below sort of operational levels of universities, but really focused on um, figuring out where to teach what across the country. I know Massey and Vic seem to come to some sort of organisation or some sort of agreement around languages recently, and I think that was maybe a first useful step. No, sorry, Otago and Victoria is what I meant to say. Um, I think the university governance is an aspect of this. The university council structure was something that was relatively recently changed with councils being you know, um, directed to be more business specific and with less of a community focus. I think that increased competition between universities might be a symptom that that's not actually working and that we'd like university governance to really focus on the communities that those universities are responsible to. Um, I, I look at the the idea of Massey to have a campus in Singapore as, as one key example of why some of our universities seem to have lost their way in that respect. Um, but then I come back to funding and my main takeaway on the funding models that we have currently is that um, coming back to what Troy said about the National Science Challenges and the money sort of falling off a cliff there, we need stability of funding and we need to not have new structures invented every time that a new pool of funding is, is, is applied. We need increased funding through existing established structures uh, and we need to be able to get on with the job. Troy, your last point on this. As a new science minister, I hope to speak to her in the, in the not-too-distant future. Um, but apart from the starting point, which is there's not enough set against everyone's under financial pressure, what would be your bullet points for, the, for what the system should look like going forward? Right. So the the first big thing is don't let the system fall off a cliff. Don't underfund parts of it that we care about so that they fall off these fiscal cliffs. The problem is how would we know that that's going to happen? And the biggest problem there is we don't measure the system. We don't measure it as well as we did 10 years ago. How would you, how would you, my, measure, how would you measure it? Uh, the, part, I was going to say in my field, the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, Simon Upton, has done an excellent job of 
showing exactly how we measure it now and making suggestions for what we can do better, how funding should lead to the outcomes we want from that funding. And actually, the minister before him has been in touch with me to say that's the thing she thinks the reforms really got wrong all the way back in the 90s that we still need to fix. Margaret Austin. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. So then there's two two more things I would say. So just to continue through with the points that we've spent quite a while working up, A good sequence is then to focus on the foundations, and the foundations of any research system are the people. Like Nicholas said, it's it's them that we actually fund in all these major things that we can keep track of, that we have people in charge of. And actually, since 2019, wages are a 27% effective inflation, if you looked at the Reserve Bank's inflation calculator, not the consumer inflation, 20%. So we're really hitting the, hitting that hard at the moment. So We haven't in, even mentioned the people. And, and look, I, I, I'll let you finish your bullet points, but it's good to lose scientists overseas for a time. It's damn good to have them come back or to have others come here. And is that really going to be a consequence quite soon, if not already? Yes. And I think that's ultimately the where we really go with the final bullet point that the New Zealand Association of Scientists has worked up here, which is that it's about connectivity, but connectivity actually helps us govern the trust that people have in the system when they work together to address big challenges like climate change. So if we use climate change as the acid test of what the system needs to be able to address, do we have the earned trust to actually fund stuff for five or 10 years until we're starting to see the payoffs? Do we have the ability of people to work together across CRIs, independent research institutions, universities, and internationally, and to bring in the best people to attract the talent that Paul Callahan was looking for to bring to New Zealand? Looking at the flip side, I can't help myself, I'm sorry, the flip side, I had some recent guests in here from Victoria uh, University of Wellington on what is now commercialised or potentially commercialised, in fact, globally, uh, research. Are the income streams, economic income streams, that are not being measured, whether they're potential or whether they're real? Mm. Yes. Um, so if you're thinking about commercial funding and how that's directed within universities... Um, it's, yes. more, it's, more, it's more the economic commercial benefits out of the science. Yeah. Is that being measured? Yeah. No, very much not in the sense of being part of the equation when universities are deciding what to cut and what not. It's very much not. Um, it's it's part of a, a, a discussion that can happen about the value of a discipline, but... Yeah. Yeah. No, it, I'm wondering it, if that conversation needs to happen up further with those who are funding the system. Were that to be measured, Troy? Yeah, look, I, th- I think we could capture that in a much broader context. I often hear us talking about wanting to get the, the missions, including the things that are commercializable and that we can capture the money on, um, represented in the system as missions. But the reality is that we actually don't have the wider strategies for the nation outside of the plant and food example that I mentioned. So a good way to do that is to actually look at the sequence of Mariana Mazzucato's books. She is um, sort of the the flagship person that you think of mm-hmm. when you think of missions. But if you look at the whole sequence of her books, you start with states that actually do big things, that actually know what they want to do, that New Zealand knows how, for example, it wants to address climate change. Then we look at the value, which is what you're asking about. Then we look at missions. And finally, we arrive... At and have looked all the way through at a lot of the false assumptions or myths that need to be addressed to get us there. Myths of commercialization don't address climate change, 
for example. Mm -hmm. So we need to think about the, the wider trust issues as the currency. We need to think about the role of consultancy as a myth that you well, know, hides our solutions to problems. The thing about Mazzucato's book also is it pointed out it was public science that started the road along everything from the internet to the moon landing, and I, I think some of the stuff that went to the moon then got commercialised into all sorts of other products. I, I, like the iPhone, I, I guess yeah. I've got my treasury kind of um, boffin in my sights here. Thank you, all of you, for the conversation. Nicola Gaston, Troy Basin, thanks very much also for your time, Michael Plank.